Well, good morning. It's a blessing to see you all this morning. For those of you who are perhaps new to our fellowship or maybe even a guest today, my name is Tim McGee. I am one of the associate pastors here at First Baptist Powell, and I am uh, have been given the stewardship and the privilege of bringing God's Word to you today. Uh, we are going to begin a new series, but before we get into that, let's get into God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, open them, if you would, please, to the book of Hebrews Toward the end of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and um, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25. So if you would join me in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and if you are able and would do so, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The writer of Hebrews is left unknown uh, in the biblical text. Now, there are lots of theories about that, and I have mine. Of course, mine are correct. Uh, but, uh, um, and if you'd like to talk about that, buy me a cup of coffee, and I'll tell you who I think wrote Hebrews. Uh, but uh, as he was led along by the Spirit of God, he wrote these words, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As many of you all are aware, if you're here from week to week for our time to worship together, you're aware that our beloved senior pastor is in the throes of Ph.D. comprehensives. Uh, And uh, for those who have have traversed those troubled waters, uh, you know what he's facing. For many of us in this room, we don't really understand what he's facing, but it is a daunting class. And in a way... uh, Several months ago, Pastor Perry came to the staff and he said, Guys, I've got this coming up. I really feel like I need to have time to to work on this. And we all just looked at him and said, Well, Pastor, why don't you you take a couple of Sundays out of the pulpit? Studies and preparation. I mean, after all, you've given uh, a large portion of the last three or four years to this work. And uh, it would really be a shame to blow it at this point. Uh, and uh, it was our desire for him not to do that. I have to work with him every day. Honestly, I really want him to pass these tests. And so out of that conversation, we decided that perhaps the best approach was for uh, several of us to step in and fill the pulpit for two or three Sundays while Pastor focused on this, and that's exactly what is happening. I'm grateful he took our advice. I'm grateful for a congregation that supports him in that, as well we should. 
And so I begin today, I have the great honor and privilege and stewardship of beginning a what we think will be five parts. Frankly, we don't know because pastor has the last three. He, it may end up being six parts, 12 parts, who knows. But for those of us who are filling in, we know there'll be three. Uh, but uh, right now, we're, we're going to be looking over the next five weeks or so at what it means. We're going to seek to answer the question, what is a healthy church member? What is a healthy church member? Now, we talk a lot around here uh, about a healthy church and what that looks like and, and the importance of that in a biblical context. But we really want to kind of press into that a little bit more and, and, and maybe talk a little more particularly, maybe a little more practically, if you will, of what, what is a healthy church member? What does it mean for me as a member of First Baptist Pal to be healthy? Uh, uh, as the Bible would lay that out. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at what may be called traits or marks of a healthy church member. Today, uh, we, will, we will talk about, uh, we'll define that a healthy church member is present in the church. A healthy church member is present in the church. So if you're like me and you like to have a title of the sermon, there it is. A healthy church member is present in the church. Next week, We'll look at a healthy church member serves the church. Week three, a healthy church member prays for the church. Uh, week four, a healthy church member gives to the church. And then we'll finally finish up with a healthy church member makes disciples of the church. And so I want to I lay a little bit of, of, of sort of general groundwork, if you will, for this series this morning, so I'm going to take a little bit longer, perhaps, in the introduction than we normally would, uh, primarily because uh, of the need to lay that foundation and that groundwork. And I want to begin with a premise that might be a little strange to some of you in the room this morning, but I want you to bear with me for just a minute because I think I can convince you that I'm right. And that is simply this: that the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who is not a church member. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who is not a church member. Let me give you a couple of examples very quickly. We've already kind of dealt with this some in our series in Acts. But in Acts 2.41, we find these words. So those who received the word were baptized, and there, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, by implication, they were added to something, Right? This idea of being added to implies there was something to add it to. I want to, I want to submit to you that what was being added to was the local church in Jerusalem. In fact, just a few verses later, in verse 47, we find these words. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, what do we see here? We see Unbelievers becoming believers. That's what the terminology being saved refers to. We see these unbelievers becoming believers and being baptized. And then, and then what happens? As they are being baptized, they are added to their number. They are added to them. They are added to the church. Folks, nowhere in the New Testament will you find a saved person, a regenerate person who is not baptized and part of a church. They're used as synonyms. And so the conception that Christianity doesn't include membership flies in the face of the New Testament. 
It, 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 is, it is contrary to New Testament Christianity. And so today, even in this message, you will catch me using church membership and Christianity and Christian as synonyms. Sometimes I'll use the word Christian. Other times I'll use the church, the, the phrase church member. I want to submit to you, in the New Testament, that's consistent. That is New Testament Christianity as it is taught in the Word of God. Now I want to take this just another step further because I think there's a misconception about church membership in general in evangelical life today. And, and we see it, it's rampant. Most people in evangelical life view church membership in much the same way you might view your membership at the health club. You go to the health club, you sign a document, a contract, if you will. And in that contract, you commit to pay a certain amount of fees, perhaps monthly or annually, in order to have rights and privileges to use the, the health club in, in whatever way is appropriate to use the health club. Obviously, I don't know about that much, but I've heard. But, you know, really, at the health club, they could care less whether you show up on a daily basis or not. They don't. In fact, they're just as happy if you don't show up because they still get your money, and, but you're not taking up space. And so many people have that mindset when it comes to church membership. We show up, we sign a contract, so to speak. Every now and then we'll, we'll give money, we'll, we'll pay our fees or our dues, however you want to think about it. But at the end of the day, whether we show up or not is not really a big deal. It really doesn't matter. I want to tell you, that is not the New Testament picture of church membership. It's not the New Testament picture of what it means to be a Christian. Let me suggest a different analogy, a different metaphor, if you will. Let me suggest that church membership is more like citizenship. It's more like being a citizen of a country. You're a part of that you have rights and privileges of being a citizen. There's a certain sense of presence that comes with that. And let me suggest that our citizenship is not of this world. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus taught. That his kingdom was not of this world, right? That our citizenship is in a place other than what we see in, in mortar and brick and flesh and blood. It is in, in heaven. It is with Christ. It transcends both physically and in time, this world. However, it has expression in this world. It has reality and real expression in this world. In very much the same way an embassy does for a country. If you have traveled abroad, and I have traveled abroad a number of times, one of the things that I always do when I travel abroad, I, I find out how to get in touch with the U.S. Embassy in the country I'm going to be visiting. Because I want to know if something happens to me as a U.S. citizen, I know how to get help from the United States of America. And in fact, here's how that works. If I walk into an embassy, in the U a U.S. embassy, let's say in Guatemala, when I walk into that embassy property, I am walking into the property of the United States of America with all the rights and privileges and protections that come from being a U.S. citizen. Friend, that's what the local church is. The local church is an embassy of heaven in this world. It is the gathering of citizens of another kingdom who gather together 
for the purpose of preaching and, and glorifying their king and preaching his gospel, encouraging one another, and living out the lives of citizens. We are not mere members of a health club. We are citizens of a kingdom. And this is not just a place where folks happen to come together. This is an embassy of that kingdom. With that as an introduction, let's look at our text and let me lay a bit of context. When we drop into the middle of a book, it's kind of good to know what's going on, right? I feel like we start in the middle of a story. And so let me lay a little bit of context and then we're going to get into the text, I promise. I know this has been a bit lengthy in the introduction, but I hope it's been helpful. Today I want us to dive into this passage in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, verses 19, 25, in an effort to help us understand the premise that in order to be a healthy church member, we must be present in the church. Now the thesis of the book of, of Hebrews is simple. The simple thesis of the book is that Jesus is better. That Jesus is superior. In the first two chapters of the book, the writer tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, the writer emphasizes upon our hearts that Jesus is superior to the greatest prophet of all, Moses. In chapters 4 through 7, we're told that Jesus is a better high priest. That he is superior to the high priest of the Old Testament. And beginning in verse 8 through about verse 18 of chapter 10, the writer tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, of a superior covenant. And it is against the background, this theological background, that the writer of Hebrews begins to lay out for us what that looks like in our lives. He spends nine and a half chapters making this point. So when we arrive at our text, he calls us to respond to these truths In faith. Interestingly, this call to faith, this call to living out these truths, is set in the context of the corporate life of the church. Look with me again at the text, very briefly. Verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, and let us. It is in the context of corporate life that the writer of Hebrews calls us to live out our faith in Christ Jesus. And so I want to unpack these verses together in the light of how we're to live out our faith as a community, as a called church. We're going to approach this by looking at, at two questions. They'll make our major points of our message. And, and then we'll break these, each one of these into two parts. But let me give you the first question. If you're taking notes... You might want to jot this down. The first question is simply this. On what basis and by what means does one become a Christian or a church member? Let me repeat that. On what basis and by what means does one become a Christian and a church member? We see this being laid out for us in verses 19 through 21 of this text. Let's look at that. First of all, Paul answers the first part of our question. Or, whoops, I may have showed my hand. Uh, the writer shows, uh, the writer gives us, <laughs> see how I did that? Just slid it right in there. He gives us the basis by which we become Christian. Look at how, look, first of all, there is a premise 
that the writer of, of Hebrews brings to this text. And it's this. The premise is this, that we are all sinners separated from God. That we're all sinners separated from God. This is a, this is a fact that is established from Genesis to, to Revelation. We see it particularly laid out in the book of Romans when Paul writes simply this in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. Are fallen short of the glory of God. In Isaiah 59.2, the, the prophet writes, But your iniquities have made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you that He does not hear. The simple truth is that every one of us, every human being, is born in sin, separated from God. And as soon as we're able to, we begin to choose sin rather than obedience to God's law. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and thereby are separated from God. We need a Savior. We need something to change the trajectory of our lives. So it begs this question, how then, how then can a sinner separated from God be brought near to God? Well, that's exactly what we find here in the text. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that God has done something to take lost sinners separated from God and allow us to confidently come into the very presence of holy God. This is phenomenal. This is, this is life-changing and earth-shattering, if you will. So he tells us how this happens. Look, first of all, at the end of verse 19. We read these words. We come with confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Do you see what he just did? He just told us that it is by the death of Christ on the cross that we are brought into fellowship of God. He'll say a similar thing in Hebrews 9.22 when he writes, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then earlier in chapter 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, there must be the blood of Jesus. We sang about that just this morning. We are, we are, a sinner can be brought near to God by the death of Christ on the cross. But he tells us more. Look at, look at verse 20. The first part of verse 20. He writes these words. By the new and living way that he opened to us, opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. In verse, in verse 20, in the, in the first part of that verse, he speaks here of the new and living way. The new and living way. That word new in the original language, in the original Greek, is used only here in the New Testament. It means to be freshly slaughtered. By the blood of Jesus, this new, this fresh, this new sacrifice, this new sacrifice that is also a living way. This speaks of the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. One, the, one commentator wrote it this way. He says, Jesus is the new way, a freshly slaughtered sacrifice who opens the way to God. It seems contradictory, right, that the freshly slaughtered way would also be a living way. But Jesus' death conquered death and gives life. His death is the only way to life that is everlasting. 
And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. So what do we see here? How do sinners... How do sinners come in the fellowship of God, into the presence of God? They come by the death of Christ on the cross. They come by the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. But notice one more thing. Look again at verse 20, the latter part of the verse. And he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. This new and living way was opened by by means of his flesh. The death of Christ opened the way for redeemed sinners. Do you see the change here? It opened the way for redeemed sinners, sinners for whom Christ had died, to come to Christ. The writer uses an interesting image here. He talks about the flesh of Christ being torn like a curtain. Uh, As through a curtain. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, he's making reference to the temple. He's making reference here that Christ's flesh is torn as as was the veil in the temple. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, one one of the things that happened as he dies on the cross is the veil that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom, opening for the very first time to all man the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. So the writer of Hebrews grabs that imagery. And he says, the the tearing of the flesh of Christ, the death of Christ, symbolizes symbolizes this tearing of his flesh. And what it actually accomplished, and that is that we now have access to God for all who believe. Do you see the beauty of this? The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is by the blood of Christ, His substitutionary death on the cross, that He became death for us, that we might have life through Him, and that by so doing, He has opened once and for all the way to God for sinners who are redeemed by His blood. And then he writes, Therefore, brothers, in verse verse 19, we go back, we have this confidence. The Old Testament context is powerful here. The ideal of entering into God's presence under the old covenant carried with it great, great circumstances and obligations. In fact, it was only one person who could enter into the Holy of Holies and only one time a year under strict circumstances and to do otherwise ensured certain judgment and death. But because of Christ's death, any redeemed sinner can enter the presence. Christ without fear. Christ, in verse 21, we are told, is our priest before God. He writes in verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, we read these words, therefore he may, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Paul would write Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 and say, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8, Paul would write, Who is condemned? 
Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is our priest. It was not simply what happened on Calvary. Christ's work of intercession and priesthood did not end at the resurrection. It continues today at the throne. He intercedes for us. Which begs the second question, how do we get there? By what means does one become a Christian and a church member? Well, I want to I suggest to you three, three things. Number one, you must believe. You must believe that God alone is the creator and the ruler of this world, that he created man in his own image, and that we have broken God's law. We have sinned against him, and we have rejected his truth. Therefore, we are guilty, and we deserve God's just judgment. That God in his love became a man. This man's name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He lived without sin, died on the cross to satisfy God's judgment on sin, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is coming again to judge all people. We must, we must believe those things. But we must also respond. We must respond in repentance. That simply means to turn away from our sin. Paul said it this way. He said, I testify to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This ideal of faith carries the ideal of trust. Trusting in Jesus alone, singularly as your Savior in faith. In Romans 10, Paul would write, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then confess. We're to confess faith openly. In the New Testament, confession comes by means of baptism. That was the confession of faith and baptism. We see it all through the, uh, the book of Acts. In Acts 8, 12, it says, Philip preached, and as Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. But baptism is more than just our confession. It is the affirmation of the church, whereby the church says, we believe that your confession is genuine and true, that you are indeed a follower of Jesus. That's why in Acts 2.41, as we read earlier, they were baptized and added to their number. If you're here this morning... And you have never trusted in this Jesus. You've never, you've never come to faith in Him. You've never turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone. I would urge you to consider that step of faith this morning. If you have questions or you would like to simply just talk to somebody about this, after the service, there will be elders in the room called Crossroads that Pastor mentioned earlier. As you go out the door, just turn left right there on your right. And we would love to take up this conversation with you. We would love... To talk with you. Maybe you've recently come to this faith. And you want to know what, what does that mean? What do I do? Give us an opportunity. We would be honored to enter that with you. Secondly. Second major point. Got the first one right? We're cooking guys. Second. What privileges and responsibility does church membership afford? What privileges and church and, and responsibilities does church membership afford? That's a long one. Let me say it a third time in case you don't write fast. What privileges and responsibilities does church membership, and you might use the synonym, does Christianity, being a Christian, afford? I want to begin, first of all, 
looking at these privileges of church membership. Now remember, I'm using these as synonyms. When I say church membership, think Christian. When I say Christian, think church member, okay? But let's first of all look at some privileges. Beginning in verse 22, Paul lays out these privileges. Number one, the first privilege is the privilege of worship. The privilege of worship. Did you realize that what we took in this morning, what we did this morning is a gift and a privilege from a sovereign God? It is. Look at verse 23. Let us, or excuse me, verse 22. Let us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us, let us draw near. Let us draw near in worship. The privilege of worship. Two things I want you to see here that the writer draws our hearts to. First of all, we draw near because of Christ's work in redemption. Now, I've already talked about that. That's, that's what he's led up to this with. He's talked about the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the propitiation of Christ. We enter now into God's heavenly sanctuary through dependence on Jesus' sacrifice. Believers are now qualified to enter into the presence of God, into the innermost sanctuary of God. We worship because of Jesus. It is a privilege. Secondly, secondly, we can draw near because of the work of Christ has been applied to us. It has been applied to us. It has been made real. It is manifested in us through Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews uses imagery here. He loves, he loves to draw on the Old Testament. And he, he, once again, he drops back into the Old Testament for imagery here. He uses this imagery of being cleansed and washed. Listen to it again. He says, in verse 22, he says, We, we draw with a heart full of assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from a clean, an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he talking about here? Well, he's not talking about the fact that you took a shower before you came to church this morning. Although I hope you did. The imagery is deeper than that. It's really taken from the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Testament. Now remember, that's our context here, right? It's these Old Testament con context of sacrifices where the blood was sprinkled as a sign of cleansing. If you're reading uh, through the Old Testament and the plan that many of us in the church are doing, you'll recall not long ago we read about the, the sprinkling of blood on the altar and on the different places. Seven times they would sprinkle the blood and uh, in, in symbolically cleansing that. And how the priests were to continually be washing themselves, cleansing themselves, if you will, in the sacred vessels and the basins of clean water. Being washed with pure water does not refer to baptism, but to the Holy Spirit's purifying of our life by means of the Word of God. God, in His Word, purifies us, prepares us to come into His presence in the privilege of of worship. The second privilege here we see in verse 23. Again, it begins with these words, let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the privilege of unwavering faith. The privilege of unwavering faith. We see here a call 
to perseverance. The writer calls us here to be unwavering, to remain faithful in our faith. This is a, this is a faithful, unwavering embrace of Christ and the gospel. Now, according to the Bible, who is it that holds on to the faith? Well, in Luke 8, 15, Jesus said, They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Those who hold fast to the word and bear fruit. Notice again, he uses the terminology, let us. This ideal of Christian perseverance is set in the community of faith. We are enabled to persevere in our faith because we join together in worship. Don't miss this. What is happening in this room today should encourage you in your faith. It should be a means by which your faith is encouraged and grows and is fostered and is strengthened. So when those dark times come, and certainly they do, right? When those dark moments come, when the enemy assails us in those private, quiet times, we fall back on what we have gained in our corporate life together. That's why, that's why in the New Testament you never see Christians existing outside the body, outside the church. It is, a, it is the means of endurance. But notice he tells us here the source of that perseverance. Notice, notice the writer of Hebrews does not say, buck up and do good. He says the source is, is that we have one who has made the promise, who has promised to keep us. And that that one who has made that promise is faithful. Confident hope in God's promises stems from God's trustworthy character. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, we read these words. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. My dear friend, we persevere because he preserves. Let me say that again. We persevere because he preserves. And one of the means by which he preserves us is the corporate gathering of the body in this place. Secondly, secondly under this, this, this topic of our, of our privileges and responsibilities... Let's, let's answer the question, what are the corporate responsibilities of church membership? What are the corporate responsibilities of church membership? Well, they can be summarized in three words found in, in verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first word I want to give you that I think summarizes our responsibility is the word exhortation. It is, a, it is a summary of that first statement in verse 24 when the writer tells us to stir up one another to love and good works. That Greek verb can sometimes be and is often translated provoke. Provoke one another to love and good works. This in its very essence is an exhortation. It's exhorting one another. Love and good deeds are the fruit of saving faith. We are not saved because we love one another and we do good works. We love one another and do good works because of our salvation. One of the responsibilities of church members is to exhort one another to love one another. 
You know well in John 13, Jesus tells us in verse 35 that the, one of the marks of a Christian is that people will know us, that we are his disciples. Why? How? That if we have love one for another. And the writer of Hebrews tells us not only to love one another, but to do good works. And indeed, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship, created what? For good works. This is, this is a definition, if you will, a working definition, a, a flesh and blood outpouring of what it means to be a church member, to be a Christian. So the first word is the word exhortation. The second word I want to call your attention to is, 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 is the word association. Look at the first part of verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. In other words, we're not to neglect coming together as a church. The church gathered provides a unique and healthy context for practicing love and good works. Think about it. It is particularly challenging to love and do good works with and to the members of the body of Christ if you're never present with them. Is it impossible? Well, perhaps not. But boy, it's challenging. If you're never present, if you're never here, if you're never alongside, if you're never fellowshipping with them, loving them and doing good works to, to other members is particularly challenging. It's interesting. The word most often used in the Greek New Testament that is translated church in our English translation is the word ekklesia. Many of you are familiar with this word. In, in original Greek, it simply mean, meant to assemble, to gather. It was the ideal of gathering. But as the New Testament writers used it, in the minds of the New Testament, this was the physical, in-person gathering of believers. In the New Testament, the term is used in a narrow sense, the sense of a singular church. This is not the church universal. This is the church gathered. This is the church local, if you will. It is a church confined to a particular place and a particular time. It is a gathering of the saints. And so we are called to gather together, to assemble, if you will, to ecclesia, so that we might love one another and do good works to one another and with one another. Not being present makes that difficult. Now, I feel necessary to give a caveat here. There are those who are part of this fellowship who are hindered from gathering with us. Some because of distance. They perhaps may be serving in the military or away at school or temporarily working away from this place. Or perhaps they were even caused by their employment to work on Sunday mornings when this body gathers most frequently. There are others who are part of this fellowship who are unable to gather with us because of health reasons or physical reasons. They are, they are hindered providentially. They can't be here. Many of whom I know and have spoken to on a regular basis who would love to be here, but are simply unable. These are not the ones I'm speaking about this morning. It is those of us who are able, who, rather, who, who choose rather not to be here, but to seek out some other means, perhaps online, or even not, maybe even not even that much, and do not gather with the body. I want to impress on you this morning that presence is necessary. There is no church without the gathering. You say, oh, wait a minute. You mean we're not a church when we're scattered? Let me give you an illustration. Is a football team a football team if they're not together? Well, sure they are. I'm still a member of the team if I'm a member of the football team. 
uh, if we're not together. But we're uniquely a football team only when we're together. In fact, if we're going to participate in what it means to be a team, we've got to be together, right? It's impossible to do otherwise. Very similar in the case of the church. The final word I want you to notice this morning in our time together in this, in this text is the word encouragement. The writer of Hebrews closes out this, this portion of Scripture by saying, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if you read commentaries on this text, one of the things you'll see the commentaries will refer to here is that this likely, in an immediate sense, was referring to the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 A.D. And I think they're probably right. But I also agree with most other commentators that it also had a more distant view, and that is the coming of Christ. Remember, the encouragement here is found in the context of gathering. We are to gather, when we gather to sing together, to pray together, to hear the word preached together, to observe the ordinances together, God prepares us for the coming of Christ. The certainty of Christ's coming should encourage us to gather, to love one another, and to do good works. So let's review. Today, we sought to understand in part what it means to be a healthy church member. Specifically, we have looked at Hebrews 10, 19-25 to inform us concerning the basis and means of our new life in Christ, as well as the privileges and responsibility that accompanies that new life. We have learned that because of Christ's death on the cross and because we have by God's grace been brought to repentance and faith, we can know God and worship Him with confidence. We've also learned that in the New Testament, to be a believer was to be a baptized member of a local church. And that God calls us into community with other believers so that by our presence in our gatherings, particularly on the Lord's Day, we can exhort and encourage one another to love and good works in preparation of the coming of our Lord. I want to close with a quote by a man that has written extensively on the church and the local church in particular, a man by the name of, of Jonathan Lehman. Here's what he writes about why the gathering of the church is so important. He says the gathered church anticipates the final assembly where God will dwell with his people once more. As we read in Revelation 20, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Our churches, Lehman writes, are embassies of heaven. The gathered church is crucial to our personal discipleship and growth, and it is necessary to our evangelistic witness to an onlooking world. And I love this statement. The gathered church is where heaven comes to earth. This morning... I want to urge you to consider what it means to be a healthy follower of Christ. It means, I believe, to be a church member. It begins with repentance and faith and confession. It, it, it continues in unless being, when we're providentially hindered, being present when the church gathers. And it shows itself as we love one another and do good works. May this be said of this body. To His glory, let us pray. Father, we're grateful for this time in your word. We are thankful, Father, for the church. Lord, I am humbled, even in this hour, by the reality that you have allowed me to be a part of your church.
to be a member of First Baptist Church in Powell. And even beyond that, Lord, you have given me the stewardship of being a leader in this fellowship. Father, I thank you for each member of this fellowship, each part of this body. I thank you for their presence, for their contribution to my well-being spiritually, to my growth and discipleship, and to the witness of this fellowship to the onlooking world, that this Jesus that we talk about is real, and this faith is transforming. Truly, Lord, we are not all we should be in you or for you, but Lord, we are your church. We are your people, and for that we are grateful today in Christ's name. Amen.